to Graphic Policy Radio, the show for people who type about the resistance a lot in their emails for more than one reason. Uh, This is the evening that we will be talking about Star Wars The Last Jedi, and I've got two great guests joining me. Uh, Star Wars The Last Jedi is dominating at the box office and online debates as people seem to be split as to what to think about the latest entry in the Star Wars universe. We are becoming one with the Force tonight to discuss the movie, its themes, and its reflection on the real world. Uh, I'm Ilana. I'm hosting without Brett today, but wish him the best. Uh, He has a really good review, actually, on graphicpolicy.com of the film. You guys should go check out. We've actually got a number of cool essays coming up on the site as well. Um, Heads up, this podcast will be 100% spoilers. So if you have not seen the movie yet, go to the movie, then come back, then listen to this. Okay. From here on out, 100% spoilers. Um, joining Graphic Policy Radio to talk about the film is Anthony Oliveria and Caden Mack. Hello. Uh, Anth- Hi. Uh, Anthony Oliveria is a <laughs> culture writer and literature PhD at the University of Toronto. You can find him on Twitter at Mia Koopa, which is how I found him on Twitter at Mia Koopa. And joining me also is Caden Mack. He is executive director at 18millionrising.org, which is this amazing online activism organization of Asian American Pacific Islander folks and allies. And that's how I know him, actually. Um, he's been there hey, for what's a up? number of Hey, he's been there for a number of years. And um, outside of work, he's a big geek. And we have talked a lot about how his organization has worked on the intersection of pop culture and activism. You might remember them from the Asian American Iron Fist campaign and um, just a lot of other like things in which people are talking about the intersection of activism on popular culture. So excited to have you both joining me. No, thank you for having yeah, me. Yeah, thanks for having us. A uh, real pleasure. So, <laughs> you were the, you know, um, the Asian Iron Fist guy. That's amazing. That was an <laughs> well, amazing won, campaign. Congratulations on that. <laughs> thank you. Oh, that was a, an amazing campaign. Congratulations on that. Thanks. Yeah, I, I, it was it was really I, um, fun. <laughs> You know, it's it's interesting because um, I think coming into the movie, I, I loved I loved Rogue One. I saw it twice. I cried. I did like a whole episode on what the activism response to Rogue One might be. This movie coming into it, I really didn't know what to expect. I, I figured it wouldn't be terrible, but I didn't know, you know, beyond much about that. I don't. I hadn't even really paid attention to the fact that the director was Rian Johnson, whose work I really like. He's the director of Brick. The Brothers Bloom and Looper, um, but I was quite impressed by the movie. Uh, give me sort of the top line. What did each of you guys think of the movie? Did you enjoy it? Which is one question. And did you think it was good? Which is a slightly different question. Um, I, I think <laughs> I enjoyed it and it was good, but that, some people might feel split about that matter. Caden, uh, why don't you go first? Um, I, I mean, for the most part, I had a blast. Uh, I thought that, like, I mean, I had a super good time. I thought that my one big complaint was that I actually thought it was too long. Um, <laughs> I, 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 but I'm, I'm sort of a routine critic of the, of the like hour and a half blockbuster format. So like, I just, I like a slightly shorter film. Um, and I thought that like the, uh, the plot got it sort of tripped over itself in a couple of places. But for the most part, I had, I had a total blast. Um, and I think that like. Uh, Ryan Johnson's uh, directorial style is something that, like, I totally love. I mean, I absolutely loved Brick. I loved Looper, um, and a lot of that sort of, like, his hand shows through a lot of a lot of the scenes, which is great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's also he did a bunch of um, 
the classic episodes of Breaking Bad, uh, the one with the fly. Oh. Um, so he's kind of, yeah. So, <laughs> so he has this uh, really specific interest in like uh, corruption and uh, what evil looks like in the soul that I think comes through the film a lot. I feel like I almost had the opposite. I, I've seen it. I did like the big like midnight screening with a big crowd um, on Friday night. And then I did another screening today with like five people in the afternoon, with like a coffee in my hand. Um, I feel like my experience of the film is kind of weird. I, I like, I think it's a very good film that it wasn't like a popcorn movie for me. Like, I don't know, like in my enjoyment was not extreme. It was just, <laughs> I think it's an interesting text um, in a way that uh, almost in the opposite way of Force Awakens. Where Force Awakens is just like a roller coaster ride that sort of like activates all this nostalgia feeling. This film felt like it only activated its nostalgia to um, undercut it. Like there's a lot of moments, and I think that speaks to like uh, what you were just saying about sort of this like false startiness of it. Like it seems to delight in um, setting up an expectation just to undermine it a few minutes later, more than once it does this, where it's like, oh, that character is dead. No, they're not. Um, uh, plot devices that seem like they're going to be important, like the code breaker is quickly dismissed, right? Like, um, and I feel like that left, it produces sort of an off-balanceness in the first screening that I think is what we're seeing in this sort of split review effect that's happening. I don't think people quite knew what to make of it because it's a challenging text. I do also think that there are um, some passages that are a little long. I do think it could have lost some of its runtime, but I, I liked it. Um, I seem to be liking it more the more I see of it and the more I think about it, I think. Hmm. You know, one of the things is that when it comes to thinking about making it shorter, which I, 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 the only reason I think about making it shorter is that everybody seems to be looking at that angle. I, I, you know, while watching it, there were a number of moments where I said to myself, oh, is this how it's going to end? And then when it didn't, I was pleasantly surprised. Right. Like, my attention span <laughs> yeah. was such that I was like, oh, it's not ending on this. Well, that's cool. I could totally sit here for longer. Like, that was my take on it. Like, I thought it was about to end, and then it wasn't, and I was fine with that. But one of the main ways that I think it could have been shorter is a way that I'm really glad it didn't do. It, it really could have combined Laura Dern and, 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 and um, Carrie Fisher's characters. And I'm really glad it yes. didn't do that because I want more middle-aged and beyond women in my science fiction stories. And oh, yeah. It mm-hmm. uh, right? And, like, you know, we know now that, like, it would have been good for Carrie Fisher to die heroically as she did in the movie. But when the movie was made, there's no way they could have known that they would need to have her die. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I think, like, the movie very symbolically, like, you know, first, the first Return of the Jedi, I'm sorry, the first, the first of the new series kills Han, the second kills Luke. The third was going to kill Leia anyway, um, so it's sort of mm-hmm. interesting how that changed here. But, like, you know, yeah, like, you could have condensed that plot line by combining those characters. But I loved having Laura Dern in it as a second female character. And that the scene in which the, our, all of our youthful heroes do their little uh, mutiny, when you see them pulling the guns out and you see the divide between the mutineers and who they're rebelling against, it is three older women women and then there's like a range of young people of mixed genders most of whom are dudes and you wouldn't have that you wouldn't have that split if you condensed them um and the other thing yeah and it's also mm -hmm. no i was just thinking that that keeping them separate characters also lets you play a different texture of character too right like leia can can be more hard-bitten whereas laura dern's character gives you um 
a softer edge to her. Like her character arc is so much about like um, the first thing Post says when he sees her is that's not what I expected, right? Like um, we are supposed to write her off. We are supposed to mm-hmm. also be suspicious of her because she doesn't act like what we expect like a military leader to act like. Whereas Leia kind of commands that presence, right? Like Laura Dern plays a softness to the character that earns you uh, the gravitas of her uh, spoiler in case, again, you are, <laughs> in case, again, you're living with this fresh, uh, that earns her sort of sacrifice at the end. Um, but the film is twinning them in such a fascinating way. I, it wasn't until I rewatched it just now. Um, when Leia wills herself back into the, the, the destroyed uh, bridge of the cruiser, um, she actually, the, the hologram of Snoke's ship is still active on the, in the wreckage, and she cuts through it as she's going in the exact same angle that Laura Dern dry, hyperdrives the ship through it at the end. So the film mm-hmm. wants you to think about them together in some strange way that I haven't quite parsed. Uh, and I agree, like, it would have been easy in a way to make this sort of Leia's last heroic moment, and the film keeps thinking about giving Leia a last heroic moment, right? Like, even that sort of again, that sort of mislead of like, oh, Leia's dead. No, she's not. Um, wants you in like almost a, a kind of a, an exploitative way to think about Carrie Fisher now being gone and like, how do you move her out of this story now gracefully? Um, but sorry, yeah, I interrupted really, you. Like, the second yeah. thing you were going to say. I mean, it really does seem like really hard to, uh, it was like really hard for me to watch this film and not think about Carrie Fisher being gone. Um, mm. Just because I feel like Leia in this plays such a like, even though she's, like, like unwell for much of, the, like, in, like, medical care for much of the film, like, she is such a sort of, mm-hmm. like, overshadowing presence the whole time. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and I'm, I'm glad that we got to see Leia use the force that mattered, that always had kind of been, like, an open, mm-hmm. dangling question, and, like, I needed, I needed to see her do that. And I also think that it's true, like, uh, the way the audience is supposed to distrust um, Laura Dern's character, like you, you wouldn't, that wouldn't have happened with Leia. Like you would have assumed that mm-hmm, maybe exactly. she was wrong in her judgment, but you wouldn't have thought she was untrustworthy. Um, right. And I was left, I and was in left with rewatching Martha. it. Oh, I was just going to say like rewatching it. Like if there's a lesson to this film, it's trust Laura Dern, right? Like everything bad that happens in this film is because they don't listen to her. <laughs> her plan would have worked perfectly had Finn not, or had Poe not dispatched Finn had uh, had they just, like, waited out her plan. It's a shame she doesn't tell them, but Poe has just, like, earned the lack of trust, right? Like, he has caused that, like, disastrous suicide mission. Um, but if they had just listened, her plan would have worked, and if she had just let him in a little bit. Like, trust is, like, such an important theme here in some uh, subterranean way. Uh, but, yeah, again, sorry I interrupted you again. I have to behave no myself. No <laughs> um, I mean, and the thing also with them is, is, like, I have to sort of put myself in the mindset of a Hillary Clinton supporter watching. I mean, obviously I voted for her in the general, right? Okay. But like, I, I didn't support her in the primary. <laughs> and I know, I know had I been a Clinton supporter from the start, I would have seen this entire plot line, not intentionally necessarily, but as being some sort of parallel for like the public's response and treatment of her. Like it, it pains me to say this because I'm like, I, I'm like the reasons there's problems with her are complex and I will not go into that right now. But like when you see it being these young men who are uncomfortable following the leadership of older women whose approach to mm-hmm. fighting doesn't feel conventionally male enough to them who they presume are going to, it's like, 
ah man, if I, I could I could write a response to this as a Hillary supporter, but that would totally be me projecting into the minds <laughs> of other people I know. But I couldn't right. help but think about that parallel. I don't know if you guys saw it at all, but a, a little. I, I mean, the thing that struck me about Laura Dern's character is also like her character design is totally this like amazing high femme anime character in some ways. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and like, as soon as I saw her, I was like, oh my god, this rules! Like Laura Dern is like a high femme anime character with li- like lilac colored hair. Um, you know, like just that by itself. Like I think also it. What's interesting is, is the number of kinds of femininity that are in this Star Wars film, right? Like, mm-hmm. in, in addition to, to Laura Dern and Carrie Fisher, there's also Kelly Marie Tran, um, who, you know, I've, I've read some people criticize her character as sort of a stereotypical nerd, but I think she's everything but. Um, there's so much depth to her and, like, the way that uh, Kelly Marie Tran plays Rose that I think is just fantastic. Um, that we just see these, like, really sort of three-dimensional women who are complex and uh, flawed and make mistakes, but are like, uh, you know, they come through as real people on screen, which I loved. Hmm. What mm-hmm. did you and tell me the, a little bit more about the high contrast. Good. I'm sorry? <laughs> the high contrast between oh, I was just, uh, the Like, as soon as Laura Dern, like, high femme and high femme standing against like these like dingy fatigues, right? Like when, <laughs> when she takes over the <laughs> yeah. leadership, it's like she stands out like a sore thumb, right? Like in a uniformity that I'm almost not even used to seeing with the rebels. Um, she's, she's made to like, like she just glows. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and definitely in terms of the background, I kept track Like there were, a, there were a lot more women in leadership positions in the control rooms than we'd seen before. You know, like there's a woman with the curly mm-hmm. hair, for example. Um, mm-hmm. They just had more incidental Who women. Who is amazing. Women. Mm-hmm. She was great, yeah. And they had more um, incidental yeah, women, she more just, women fighter pilots. I think that's just a, I felt around. like that was a response to, yeah, I felt like that was a response to um, Rogue One. One of the critiques of Rogue One was that it was uh, very dude heavy, even in, even yeah. in its sort of rebellion figures. Um, mm-hmm. that I, I looked at that actress's name. Um, she just finished playing the angel in Angels in America, and she's just amazing in that oh, part. Shit. Um, yeah, it's so like it, it was the production with Nathan Lane and uh, Andrew Garfield and Russell Tovey. Mm-hmm. She plays the angel and like the nurse, you know, that part is usually doubled. And they sort of mm-hmm. use her like avianness, like that, like that sharp featuredness, um, in a way that is, like, so opposite of the Emma Thompson version of the angel. And I thought it was, like, very effective here, again, like, different qualities of femininity, right? Like, different styles of leadership. Um, Like, just the simple volume of women in this film lets you play so many different notes instead of just, like, in the original where there's Leia and not much else, right? Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Divyesh on Twitter just brought up Captain Phasma, and I think that, like, uh, I agree with Divyesh that we just don't see enough of Captain Vesma. I think mm-hmm. she gets she gets sort of the short end of the stick in this film. Yeah, and the the person writing the Captain Phasma book, I haven't read it yet, but the person writing it is a really excellent comic book writer, so I will definitely pick it up. Yeah, I mean, I love having Gwendolyn Christie in this, and again, it's like, yeah. she's kind of the Boba Fett in a good way and a bad way. Like, she's about Boba Fett in the sense that she's being set up to be like this mysterious badass, but much like Boba Fett, there's like no there there, you know? Um, right. <laughs> yeah, which is just like, yeah, I think it would be a shame if that was her so curtain. much. What was that, Caden? I feel like I, 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 like I enjoy Gwendolyn. So 
Sorry, Caden, what was yeah. that? <laughs> it's like, Caden. Go ahead, Anthony. <laughs> oh, no, I was just going to say, like, I see more of her in the, like, extraneous material promoting the film. Like, I like watching her, like, pet lizards with John Boyega and stuff. <laughs> more than she actually gets yeah. to do much in the film. Um, I do hope that wasn't Phasma's curtain call. I, I hope that we do see, because I think it's an important arc. Um, as much as it's, it is sort of like, again, like, it's nice to have a female villain. It's also nice that she um, she plays a, a really great, crisp British opposite to um so she's like the character as much as she is a boba fett she's also like a nazi slaver right like this the mm-hmm. the, the cruelty of the the rebel scum comments like um i think that that arc is an important one to finish out and i hope that that gets picked up and um made more robust in the next film well i'd like to hear you so uh, like particularly your thoughts on rose as a character um I, I thought that, you know, the actress's performance was just so charming and engaging, and I really enjoyed her. I, I was so proud of her for, like, fucking kissing the guy and, like, just not playing games with that um, and for calling people on their shit. Um, I, I, you know, I, was, I thought it was cool that she was a mechanic. I was a little bit like, but she should do mechanic things. Uh, and, and not just fly ships at people, which seems like a bad job. I mean, for, but from a standpoint of a little kid watching the movie, it's like more important for a little kid watching the movie to see, to see Rose piloting uh, uh, the ship in that fight, a, a land skimmer or whatever in that fight, than it is for me to be like, why is the engineer piloting a ship? She should be fixing some stuff. But um, I definitely <laughs> was sort of like, I wanted to see her engineer. I don't know. What are your thoughts on the character and her importance? Yeah, you know, I, I think that the thing that stood out to me actually more than anything about Rose is the sort of, like, relationship with her sister who dies in the very beginning of the movie. Um, and, like, I don't know, I thought it was, like, a really interesting way to sort of, like, talk about, uh, you know, in, like, other other forms of family relations that, like, you know, the the strength of the relationship between families in the Star Wars whole mythos is so important and, like, I think that uh, one of the things that really resonated with me about Rose's character is like her dedication to sort of like the memory of her sister and like how she gets into this whole situation in the first place is like that sort of, uh, you know, like sense of loyalty, sense of obligation uh, that like her Mm. sister gave her life for this cause. Um, And I just found that so like tender and exquisite, but like, I'm, I feel like for me in basically like all kinds of pop culture, I'm searching for like, different kinds of family configurations and different kinds of like ways of like the characters relate to each other outside of sort of like uh, romantic love and like different kinds of expressions of love than that. Cause I, I'm just so like over the sort of like heteronormative, like love plotline. And I, I, I feel so strongly that like, I don't know the like Rose and her sister have this like incredible connection across time and space. And even like after death that I find so compelling. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I've seen a couple of people criticize Rose, that the character of Rose for being like sort of a stereotypical Asian nerd. But like I said previously, I, I really don't, I don't see her that way. I think she's like really uh, three dimensional and she has feelings and she like, she's, she has like all kinds of like desire and like, uh, just fire in her that's that's not the, exactly the opposite of the stereotypical Asian nerd who's like flat and does the engineering job and like you know doesn't ask questions and doesn't rock the boat and I think that's that's really powerful uh, and she's hilarious. 
which is, I, you know, also <laughs> a winning combination. <laughs> yeah. I, and has I, a different sense of humor than everybody else too, right? Like her, her doing talking thing, like she's socially awkward um, in a way. Her, her lines don't sound like anybody else's lines, which is a pleasure to hear, right? It's nice to hear different yeah. textures of voice in the film too. That's a good point. I, you know, I, I, some people were, I, I heard some people be critical of her sister's death and, the, and I just like, I, I get it. Like it sucks every time we see women of color dying in any movie um, but it wasn't like a fridging. It was like the entire point of the story is that Poe being a dude about everything gets an entire fleet wiped mm-hmm. out. Like it's, yeah. it's showing how bad he fucked up and her send off. I mean, Paige Tico's send off is like this amazing scene with the tension that builds her heroism. And then this slapstick humor for a second. That's like the darkest slapstick humor in the world. And then she grabs it <laughs> and she does it. And then she dies with such nobility. It's like a ridiculously mm-hmm. powerful scene. And I think that if yeah. Rose Tico wasn't there to, to still be in the story, being an Asian female character throughout the story, moving forward, I would be like, fuck that shit. But because you actually do have Rose Tico there, I think Paige is like this amazing mm-hmm. sequence, this amazing death. And one of the big points of the movie is like, look at the losses that people experience from war. Um, I, I just kept thinking right. about like all of the horrific information about the pilot, morale, that pilot fatalities during World War I and World War II. I like went on a whole pipe down looking at like, I mean, the whole bomb, all the bomber planes themselves are just like literally sitting ducks to be blown up. And like the kind of, Mm-hmm. situation that you find yourself in where you're like, I'm going to fly a ship full of things that will blow me up. Like the bomber pilots are way more daring <laughs> than the people doing the X-wing fighters, right? Like you need to have some mm-hmm. serious right. bravery to stand on top of that. And the whole bombing fleet gets wiped out. It gets wiped out because like Poe thinks he knows what's best. Um, yeah. And um, that just felt like that was really significant. And Leia calls him like you got a whole fucking fleet of bombers wiped out. Um, war is, war is hell. That, <laughs> um, I thought that whole opening passage was amazing. Like the whole sequence with the dreadnought fight is just like a perfect war sequence, right? Like easily one of the best, <laughs> easily now one of the best war sequences in a film. Um, and like the exchange, it opens with that, it builds so well. Like it opens with that like comedy exchange between Poe and Hawks where he's pretending he can't hear him, right? Just to buy time. Like it's got this like, it gives you the swashbuckling and then builds to the tragedy, right? Um, mm-hmm. I didn't know going in that Rose was, I didn't really, I, I avoid spoilers, so I didn't know the arc of the film at all. Um, and I thought what's amazing is we see this heroic death, which I, I, I agree doesn't read as a fridging. It does read as this like noble on its own terms death. Um, and then it seems to forget about it. Like it, it becomes abstracted, right? Like Leia sees it on the, the board as registering as a casualty. Um, and it's only then, much later, we see this woman crying for her sister and slowly realize that this abstraction will again become the personal, um, which is actually mm-hmm. ends up being the final stakes of the film, too, right? Like, mm-hmm. the abstraction of these kids that Rose convinces she's with the resistance and gives the ring to are actually now the seeds. That That is the spark, right, that will light the fire that whatever burns the, <laughs> the First Order down, right? Like, it is not actually the, the great military victory that does it. It is the story that you give somebody that the oppressed and the marginalized can actually uh, overcome these impossible forces, right? 
Um, I also so that's, think what, that's, like, why I, that's what I did like about mm-hmm. those. I mean, I, but I, I also ahead. think like in terms of the in terms of the way the uh, movie sort of shows the loss. I, I, you know, I, I felt like people came out of the movie with two minds with respect. Like, this is a movie in which like everybody dies. So much of the rebel force mm-hmm. dies in this movie. Like, do we feel that? Is that adequately conveyed to the audience the scale of the death and suffering that has happened? I mean, I think the beginning of the movie really does, like, it literally calls out, like, the, the dreadnought battle is a Pyrrhic victory. Like, it literally says that. Mm-hmm. But by the end mm-hmm. of the movie, like, do you think that people fully feel the weight of all the deaths that have happened? I, I do, but others have said that they do not think that that is conveyed. Well, you know, I actually, um, so I watched, uh, I watched The Force Awakens today at, like, just, you know, I was, like, clicking around, <laughs> doing some, writing some email, and I was like, I'll put this on. And they destroy planets very casually in that film. <laughs> oh yeah, like, like, like nine of them, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, like it's like really the the planet count is enormous, right? And it's like, I think that one of the things that struck me after watching The Force Awakens again is just how like human scale this film is compared to mm. that one. Um, and I think that 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 really made things much more profound for me now thinking about the Last Jedi again. Um, and I really do think that, like, there's a little more sense of, like, uh, how much more massive, like, the loss of, like, somebody who, who you know who is actually close to you, that is, like, a person to you can be. Um, and I don't know. There, I think there's, there's something else going on there with, like, uh, I guess <laughs> a willingness to, to engage with, like, the actual consequences of death. Um, yeah. And I think that, yeah, that sounds right to me. Um, I think that, yeah, it's true. The first film was very cavalier about it. It's just like, oh, well, the what was it, a star killer? It killed nine planets. And we see, like, one glimpse of some people looking off a balcony, and that's it. This film felt like it was crueler about its deaths. It, it would let you, it would let a character have a hero moment, and then, like, we don't know anything about them, but we'd see them, and then we would see them die, right? Like, we see the captain going down with the ship every time... Um, every time one of the support vessels loses power, we get a sense of like, well, some of the ships escape, not all of them. We get a yeah. head count a few times where they're told like there's 400 resistance fighters left. Like, um, I think that the film purposely let us register that loss uh, so that we do, and that's why it seems like it's crueler, that like we are allowed to at least grow to like several characters only to see them cut down um, with a viciousness that isn't the films, but is the world that they live in, right? Like, that's, it costs us, the audience, if it costs no one else, in a weird way. Mm-hmm. Well, I know, you know, I, I, for one, I definitely got teary-eyed when General Holdo gave her speech about, like, being the spirit of the resistance. And, I mean, it's impossible to think and talk about resistance in this current political context without, like, thinking about how people are also using that word to talk about, you know, organizing against the Trump administration and against like the evils of global capitalism more broadly. And I've seen a number of people who I generally like on social media or whom are adjacent to people I like on social media sort of try to like lambast people's emotional response to the movie um, and its politics. And these are people who are from the left themselves, who are basically acting as if it's silly for people to have an emotional response connecting 
like the resistance in the movie to like the resistance as we experience it in our lives. And I mean, honestly, I think it's impossible not to connect those things. Like the point of stories and the point of mythic storytelling is that you're supposed to read your own experience and life into the, the meta text of the, of the mythology. So uh, I think it's impossible not to view it in that light. But I, I, but for me, like the biggest like teary-eyed stuff for me was like anything where people were talking about like the spirit of the resistance and like that and I, mm-hmm. for that you know for me. But like I just don't understand like I it's not it's not corny to like internal at least I don't think it's corny to internalize you know the the, the heroism of the resistance in the movie and like think about what you know what that means here. I think that much like Rogue One, it's a very scary proposition. Like, look at how many fucking people died, right? Um, yeah. But I, I, mm. I, how, how else can I respond, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I, this goes back to your point earlier about Hillary Clinton. I, I'm, I'm noticing that um, a lot of the pop culture films that are landing right now seem to be processing the sort of the grief of 2016 and 2017 in in very like um very on the surface ways like uh this film i mean even just oh its first words are the first order reigns right like that that Mm. is to me what 2017 has felt like Uh, you know as much (laughs) as you know like when the when the fourth awakens came out i remember being struck that it felt odd to me and it felt weird to me that this was a film for the that wasn't like the predecessors in that evil was not already in charge. I remember being confused by the politics of the fourth awakens when it came out, because there was the Mm. first order and there was like the resistance, which was a splinter cell of what, like the new Republic. Is that what it was? Um, And it didn't make sense to me at first. And it's only now that I'm starting to see that these films in a very weird way have been made to parallel in an odd way, our experiences of the last few years, right? Like there was a sense of a, of a column of fascism rising um, that hadn't yet metastasized into power. And now 2017 has rolled around and that the first order reigns, right? Like (laughs) this film Mm -hmm. is sort of dealing with that in the same way that um, I just saw Justice League a few years, a few days ago, um, Justice League is a strange Frankenstein of a movie because it's shot by Zack Snyder, but basically finished by Joss Whedon. Um, and the cut, so it's weird. You're looking at a film that looks like a Snyder movie, but sounds like a Whedon film. Um, and it opens with this sort of like grief stricken processing of the loss of Superman that also at the same time feels like dealing with the loss of, in a weird way, Hillary Clinton. <laughs> um, the same thing is happening, it looks like, in the trailer for uh, the new uh, Avengers movie, where, like, Thanos' speech is about that sense of having been defeated, right? Like, what does it feel like to have hope after you have lost? And these films seem to be trying to find a way to restructure hope in a weird way. Hope has become suddenly this... You can say the word hope, and I will immediately start crying in your film now. <laughs> That's yeah. what 2017 was for me. <laughs> I mean, Caden, are there org- other things that we can use in, in this movie as organizers? I mean, I think that, uh, you know, the, even, even this, lesson, this lesson that seems to be about war, about, like, the sort of, like, flashy, fast thing uh, that maybe we go to first, not maybe being the best plan, um, 
is something that like I think about all the time, especially as somebody now who like runs an organization and has to make sort of strategic decisions about what we put resources into, you know, it's like there is uh, an important balance between that sort of like flashy heroism and the sort of like important work of infrastructure building that Mm -hmm. I think, uh, especially these days, I've been coming more hard down on the side of infrastructure building and and maybe it's because that's what feels tangible, but sometimes it it feels uh, so disconnected from, from what's happening in the headlines that it's really hard. Um, Mm. and the other thing that I think about too is, is, uh, the sort of, I guess how long it takes Kylo Ren to get from like, uh, to, to truly turn right. That like his, uh, the fight scene in the throne room where he and Ray are like these sort of strange bedfellows and they get the job done. Um, but then Kylo ends up turning anyway, like, you know, I think that there's maybe some political lessons in there as well, where, like, sometimes <laughs> sometimes we need to make strategic allies out of people that we don't 100% trust. Um, <laughs> Fifth apprentice. But also, you know, still, still hold those folks at arm's length, right? Like, they can yes. still screw yeah. you over. I, I was honestly surprised uh, by uh, Kylo Ren's arc in this film, and I thought Adam Driver was absolutely spectacular. Like, he mm-hmm. kind of stole every scene mm-hmm. he was in. Um, and uh, the sort of struggle that we watch him go through over the course of the film, I think is like one that, uh, I don't know, similarly, like now in the con- like in our current political, con- political context, um, with, you know, people talking, th- talking out loud and processing out loud, like how do I talk about, uh, Trump su- talk to and about Trump supporters in my own family, for instance. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I, 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 I sat there watching, sort of like Ray trying to connect with him deeply on, you know, a very genuine level. Um, But then like the viciousness with which she's pushed away, ultimately, um, I think there's a lot of, I mean, that, I think that was like the storyline that really got me the most emotionally Um, that sort of like Mm. genuine attempt on Ray's part to, to really sort of like find Kylo's friends redeeming qualities. Um, and find the bend that's still inside of him. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, I, I think that's really well said. I, I also, like, I did not want Kylo Ren to have a redemption arc, and he didn't have one, and instead we got a better, more complex look at what created him, and that was kind of exactly what I wanted to see. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I love Mark Hamill. I'm sorry, Luke Skywalker. It's pretty much the same thing at this point. Apologizing to him <laughs> for what he Sometimes did. Sometimes he's a joker, you know. <laughs> I guess that's true. But, uh, but um, I, I, you know, it's I love nice him to actually. Some flashes of the Joker here. Yeah, I mean, the voice acting is there. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, sort of like good, when he when he has his moments. <laughs> and the humor as well. I mean, but, but but it was good to see though. Like, I love like Mark Hamill is. Luke Skywalker apologizes to Ren, to to, 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 to to Kylo Ren for what he considered doing and didn't do, but he knows full well that mm-hmm. he will not. The, you know, the apology will not will not be accepted. I mean, and that's okay. Like that's, that's that he's just sort of offering it from grace because he wants to put that there. And I, I think that Kylo Ren in the movie, like he really just everything he says is about the big movie themes. He, the whole thing with like blowing up the past, it's like he might as well be talking, telling that to the moviegoers, right? Like there's so much of the Star Wars mythology right. that's challenged in this movie. 
and he's the one who reveals a lot of it. Like, hey, Ray's parents aren't anybody. And of course, I was so happy because I didn't yeah. want them to be because I fucking hate this predestination. Our blood makes us special. Yes. Like, yeah. Things. It's very popular. Which is still weirdly, still has a purchase in the film, right? Um, yeah, I agree. I, I, I mean, a lot of the film, it's a terrible pun, but like a lot of the film is about clearing out dead wood, right? Like getting rid of things that don't work. Like Snoke is not interesting. Let's get him off the board. Um, Ray's parentage <laughs> is a dead end. Get rid of that. The, the Jedi as a religion is something that I think the film does a spectacular job of unpacking and dismantling, right? Like, it gets rid of the sort of theocratic um, ugliness of the prequels. Um, it was nice for mm-hmm. me to see Yoda again as like a figure that I yes. like, <laughs> as like a person <laughs> who I don't find immediately distrustful and unpleasant. Um, I loved that. I also liked um, to answer uh, a question that wasn't asked of me because I'm not a community organizer. I'm the pure champagne socialist. But uh, what I found new <laughs> here and what I found useful um, that I've never seen in a Star Wars film before and that I'm very happy to see here is um, that uh, I believe the planet is called Canto Bight, the, the yes. casino planet, mm-hmm. is explicitly beautiful, right? It is an evil thing mm-hmm. that is beautiful. That is not a normal Star Wars concept, right? Like when things are evil in Star Wars, they are immediately ugly in almost like an ableist way, right? Like the force will oh, warp yeah. you. People who are bad lose limbs. I liked that we were given this world and we were encouraged to see it as beautiful. And it was only then undermined in a very, I mean, it is ultimately there are always kids movies for kids at some level. And I liked the way it insisted you see register the beauty and then register the malevolence behind that. And then encouraged you to see the destruction of that beautiful thing as still heroic Um, because it is a beautiful thing built on lies. It is a beautiful thing built on evil and just because it's beautiful, it does not make it fit to survive. I thought that was politically a very useful thing to hear said um, in a film for kids, just because it, you can be seduced by these sort of optics, right? Mm-hmm. And definitely one of the reasons why some people have been like, oh, they should have canceled, they should have cut out the Canto Bite stuff because that ended up being a wild goose chase. Like, no, we needed to see that. We needed to show who's profiting off the war business. I do want to be clear on this because mm-hmm. I think some folks have misunderstood this. The the ship that they that DJ uh, the thief steals who was from a war profiteer. They were not giving money to both sides. It was selling armaments to both sides. So right. it yeah, was it's clearly like capitalism. Yeah, it's 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 mm-hmm. specifically like a it's specifically a capitalism you know critique that's being done here. And it shows you, like, the pain that builds up the pleasure planets. I, I loved visually the scene of the fake horses, sort of like the space horses, like, crashing through the walls, because it kind of had this look of, like, oh, yeah. nature, nature, like, reclaiming the unnatural buildings that had been built up around it and, like, getting absorbed in that way. Mm-hmm. But I also, somebody puts, uh, I, I, a number of people posted online, the, uh, the entry, the, the beginning scene with the uh, casino is a shot completely like based on a shot from the movie wings, which was the first movie to win an Academy award back in the 1920s, uh, which I, it's just an oh, amazing wow. homage. You should take a look for that. If you search for it, you'll see it guys. And um, I mean, given how much money, how much the star Wars movies borrow from the world war II dog fighting films, uh, it definitely, and like wings is actually a movie about world war one dog fights. 
Um, I thought it was a really cool thing to reference. Like that shot is absolutely a reference from there. Um, but yeah, I feel like Canto Black. Oh, you guys are so much more highbrow than me. <laughs> I mean, I didn't, I, I, yell about it, but I just happen to know the reference, but, um, but yeah, it was just like, we need to see people talk about the problems of the mechanism there. And we needed to yes. uh, actually have that be in the story. And nobody had mm-hmm. discussed like the class war aspect of star Wars just hadn't really been vocalized before. There always was like a birthright I mean, this is cult- undermining of it. Yeah. I mean, the first time we meet Luke Skywalker, he's buying a slave, right? Like, this is yeah. this is a world that has never problematized. It's um, it is a capitalist system. It's a, our villains are. I mean, there's there's Darth Sidious or whatever Emperor Palpatine wrapped in a cloak, but there's also Jabba the Hutt, right? Like mm-hmm. this is a world that runs on, and these are the people who who thrive on these systems. And I liked having that addressed, and I liked having um, Benicio del Toro's character made into a new kind. Of, I mean, one of the reasons I think Phasma falls out is because del Toro becomes the foil for Finn instead. Um, oh, sort yeah. of, uh, I'm interested in how the way Finn is becoming more sophisticated and problematized as a character. He's not just like a hero now. He's a hero who will, he will desert to the cause because his friend is in danger. Um, he seems to be becoming aware of the complexities of the system that have interpolated him in a lot of ways here. Uh, and I liked all of that. I liked the talk about the arms dealer. I liked, I liked that he wasn't secretly a good rogue. He was actually perfectly willing to betray them all, right? <laughs> I liked that a lot. You raised a good point about Finn, actually. In, in that, you know, what Finn is, is he's, he wants to, he's somebody who's, who's realizing his ability to be an individual. His individuality mm-hmm. is the thing that was most denied to him as a stormtrooper. And so it kind of makes sense that, like, he most wants to express himself by going and protecting his individual friend rather than saving the whole universe. Um, but uh, so, you know, I think that that's like a logical place for his character to go. He also, of course, is the center of a love quadrangle. It, quad, not quadrangle. Uh, oh, rhombus, perhaps. Yes. Perhaps they love rhombus. rhombus yeah. <laughs> um, and that's a cool place to situate your African uh, character, clearly. Um, but the, I, I, I mean, I, I know that some of our, at least one of our folks on Twitter has asked us to wait on, on the matter of various love rhombuses. And, um, I, I would not <laughs> want to deny them that I, you know, I honestly think that like everybody wants Finn. That's one of the things we learn here. And I give Kelly Marie trans character Rose prop, like she fucking kissed him, which is like, people don't. Like women don't just go and do that in Star Wars, and you don't see enough of that in cinema. <laughs> period. So go for her. <laughs> obviously, obviously, you know, um, uh, obviously Poe is still attracted to him, and that will never actually be taken anywhere because the people uh, in the film are cowards. But um, the yeah. actor still did his due duty of ogling Finn, and I also had to laugh. He did. <laughs> I had to laugh when. Like BB-8 is like Finn is is leaking water and naked, and I was like, oh, those are just the things you wanted to hear about him. <laughs> yeah, and he <laughs> like that's off. That is what BB-8 says. I mean, I that's what BB-8 says to Poe. He's like, what? What is it, girl? Did Timmy fall down the wall? No. Oh, Finn is naked and leaking water. What? Oh, Finn, hi. Um, and you obviously, get a lot Ray, of that course, to juice onto Poe too. <laughs> Oh my god. Yeah. Oh, adorable. <laughs> and then obviously Ray of course also loves Finn. So hence the love rectangle as I see it. Um do you have mm-hmm. do you, would you like to weigh in on any of these matters you guys? 
I I I had um my response to Rose was complicated, <laughs> and the reason my response was complicated was because she's a a great great character, a character who I'm so happy to see on the screen, and yet part of me was deeply resentful that at least some aspect of her seemed to be designed to get Finn away from Poe in a way that audiences would find palatable. Um, mm. I found that, and I found myself at some level resenting that deeply. <laughs> um, I feel like as much as I, I love watching Oscar Isaac work and I love, I love that all his scenes were with these um, older maternal figures for him. Um, like he has his various good moms and bad moms throughout the film, but he's like isolated from the character that we basically that sold all of force awakens as like a, as an emotional thrust. Um, and that bothered me, and I'm still processing how much that bothered me. <laughs> it might change if the next film finds a way to change it. My instinct is that if Disney eventually develops any kind of nerve about this, they may give us a queer Poe and then pair off Finn more heteronormatively, is my sense. I don't know if you guys have a different sense than I do, um, but that's where my instincts are leading me these days. And I would, I would, I would love to see this like total headcanon um, play out uh, in the <laughs> in the actual canon. Um, I I also sort of had uh, a, I didn't have like this a, a very positive reaction to um, Rose kissing Finn, and and part of it is I think that like I said I I have this sort of like almost at this point uh, knee-jerk reaction against the sort of like default to um, a romantic heterosexual relationship between like lead or leadish characters. And that's kind of why mm-hmm. I like that uh, Ray and Finn's relationship is this like really deep, genuine friendship. Like they are emotionally intimate. They care deeply about each other. They, I don't think they're actually attracted to each other. I think they actually genuinely just want to be besties. And that's rad. Like, <laughs> I want to see more like yeah. that, you know? Um, I thought that and... was happening until the blanket. Until he put the blanket on Rose and we watch Ray be jealous. I was That was the first time I was like, oh, something's going on. They like, mm. but maybe that's a throwaway yeah. shot. I mean, we also have and to keep they in mind Ray that this is a franchise that once, what's that? And that moment is when they introduced Ray to Poe. So that's very deliberate. Yeah. Right. They have and Oscar Isaac, of course, like sparks with chemistry, right? Yeah. <laughs> I but they they have Ray see that to... so they can introduce her to Poe and that Poe can also be like, hi, I'm charming to everybody. Like, this is very calculated <laughs> on the part. Yeah. I have chemistry with a literal beach ball. <laughs> yeah, he does. It's true. Um, wow. Good point, right? <laughs> Um, but, you know, I, I mean, I also, this is I, a franchise that once solved its emotional, um, its romantic arc by producing a spontaneous incest plot, right? Like, Star Wars is not really required <laughs> to solve. <laughs> its merry-go-round solutions to this aren't always that elegant. Um, so it sort of enjoys leaving you in the space of a few years of imagining whatever fanfic you want. And I think that it left a lot of nodes open at the end of this one, like, suddenly mm-hmm. a triangle turned into, like, more than a rhombus, right? Because, like, Kylo Ren, now that people don't have to feel squicky about the potential incest plot, now that Ray is literally not related to anybody, 
people feel less weird, she'll migrate into all these other plots, right? So, yeah. Um, well, I, I wondered about that too. The like, especially how intimate those like sort of mind connection scenes are between uh, yes. Ray and Kylo Ren. That like, because they're like literally in each other's brains and sort of like seeing each other, almost like, I mean, I read almost like seeing each other through one another's eyes. Although he does say at one point that he could see her, but not her surroundings. Right. Um, she can also register like, his giant nipples, right? She's like, please put on a shirt. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like gratuitous topless Ed and driver scene. Um, <laughs> but that, I mean, that's such a, even though it's like, uh, you know, contrived and sort of like, uh, brokered by Snoke for his his own purposes. Like there's such mm-hmm. a like mm-hmm. intense intimacy there that is like I think really interesting too. Yeah, I want to talk about Ray, Ren, and Ray. I mean, for one thing, I had not thought about the similarities in their names until this movie came out, and this movie is very dedicated to you seeing them as doubling and parallels. I have to think Ray is R E Y, Ren is R E N, Y for yes and for no. Given Star Wars oh, bizarre. <laughs> bizarre tendencies with names. I'm like, yes, that's on purpose. Um, I, 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 I'm, you know, and the thing is like, I, he like, lit, Ren literally tries negging Ray. Like, he's like, you come from nothing. You're nothing. But not to me. Yes, I'm like, this is negging. Uh-huh. Right. This is yeah. negging. Like, everybody's been talking about how he's like an MRA. And like, he is. <laughs> he is. Yeah. Like, I think that, he's there to and do And I think it. that actually tells you a lot I think that tells you a lot about why the kind, I mean, I, I think like you guys, I'm seeing a lot of different kinds of reviews of this film, but I think it's very telling that the kind of person who's mad at this film for being, you know, a social justice warrior project, which by the way it is, which Star Trek, uh, Star Wars always has been. <laughs> Sorry guys. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> the same kind of person who's mad about that is mad that Ray is nobody. They're mad that she's not linked into this plot. And I think that's telling because there yeah. is a certain um, conservative mindset that admires Star Wars's aristocrat, uh, aristocratic mindset, that bloodlines matter, that this is the story of important people, um, and mm-hmm. that the fantasy of Luke Skywalker is that you may think you're nothing, but actually you are the crown prince of the most powerful the man in the galaxy, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And, and making Ray nothing and leaning on it. The weird thing to me is that in the new franchise is allowed to do flashbacks in a way that the old franchise absolutely never did. Like, we mm. keep seeing flashback cuts. Um, we see Luke at the temple mourning. We see all these things mm. that we never got to see in the old series. And yet we don't... It would have been so easy to show us Ray's family leaving her, show us the pauper's grave that Kylo Ren talks about. And that beat never landed. And it's left an unfortunate um, vibration in the critical voice about like, well, maybe that will end up not mattering. Maybe that will be proven false. Right. And I, I regret uh, that because I do think it's important. I do think it's, it's now important to the film's avowed project as of last Jedi that Ray did not matter, that her family was junk, that she is junk, that she is from nowhere, and yet has found her way into this story and has become the most important person in the galaxy. Yeah, I'm just so relieved that there isn't, you know, like just mitochlorines and destiny and familial being the only (laughs) thing. Like like that was the reason, that was like the way we could be like Star Trek is superior to Star Wars is because Star Trek is not about like a royal fucking family. 
But um, I actually have to quote right. on Twitter. Mermaid of Hyrule wrote, whenever people are basically, whenever people are saying Disney reads Star Wars liberal, listen, conservatives were whining about how Empire Episode 3 was anti-Bush. It's not Disney's fault. Your garbage politics resemble that of space Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that says it all. Thank you. Although, yeah, it's, it's one I like it because have. we leaned into it, though. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One question I have is I'm like, I just mean I like... all these, sorry. No, go on. Sorry. <laughs> One question I have is we see all of these, um, we see all the, you know, the, they send out a warning signal to allies of the resistance and uh, they don't hear anything back. And I wish we knew, and I know we can't, but maybe we can find out in the comics or something. Like why did the other people in the other spaces abandon the resistance? Like, were they dealing with some crisis mm-hmm. of their own at the time? Was there a failure of leadership and ideology? Like, what caused that yeah. to be abandoned by anyone beyond the folks who are in the immediate struggle is an important question to me. Um, yeah, I, I think that you, you hit a key word there, right? Is um, This is a film that's interested in failure, right? Like failure is an important thing. Yoda says that, uh, fail, what is it? Something about failure is what t- failure teaches us best. Master, and then, yeah. Right. And then we are, we are what they move beyond, right? And I think that that's important. I mean, when you watching it a second time, I was struck. I, I sort of already talked about this in a Laura Dern adjacency, but <laughs> I was struck that every plan the good guys make in this film fails. Every single one. Every character's main plot would have been better if they had done nothing. Um, uh-huh. So, <laughs> so like, it seems yeah. important to me that that represents itself at a macro level. That this is a it is an echo, as much as it is a film interested in not echoing the previous film, it is echoing Empire Strikes Back in that way. It's a film where we are at our lowest point when this film ends. And it seems to me important that in the same way that there is this weird Hillary Clinton-Trump echoing happening, it is important that everybody in the galaxy fails to show up, that everybody does not come in the moment of crisis. And what does it mean to live in a space where you have to acknowledge your ethical failure. You have to move past the fact that you colluded with evil at a moment where you could have stood up and you didn't. Um, and I think that's why it matters that we hear like Leia summons people and they don't come to her aid. And then it becomes about now what? And then we get the glimpse of the kid who is telling the story of the, the resistance. Like, I think that that level of, catastrophe is what the film is interested in um, mm-hmm. that your well, allies and, will abandon you and I think it's also really interesting if we do want to talk about the sort of like movement lessons um, that are that are sort of embedded in this film that like you know not the way that, I mean in, in sort of like all of my experiences with organizing like there will be days when no one will show up for your shit um, <laughs> and uh like you have to reckon with that, you know, whether it's, you know, because whether it's, we're talking about an election or, or something more like sort of about grassroots or community power, like those sorts of failures, they seem catastrophic, but what's interesting is that like, uh, you know, if you learn how to bounce back from them, if you understand what is like still compelling about uh, what your uh, the message that you're bringing to folks, I think that's like, when you do become stronger, right? That like 
sometimes in that retelling, in that sort of like bastardization of the message, you discover something new that you yourself would never have found. Um, and that's that's sort of like what I see in that like closing scene with like the uh, the slave kids like retelling the story. Um, they're finding the sort of like those deep resonant points about like what actually happened and turning them into mythology in a way that may allow them to like come back stronger in the future. Mm, thank uh-huh. you. That's yeah. That's what I need. I mean, and speaking of like going into the future, I mean, right now we have an empire which is literally being run by an unstable, incompetent giant baby who broke his helmet and having a temper mm-hmm. tantrum again, slash MRA. Mm-hmm. Like he's like MRA Trump, like alt right kid in charge. Um, and mm-hmm. um, I mean, it's just it's just complicated because like I'm not saying he doesn't have he he doesn't have his point. Like he's part of eliminating that generational uh, the there's a really good essay I have to point to that um, comics legendary comics writer, Jerry Conway uh, wrote on Tumblr, actually talking about this whole thing in terms of generational conflict between millennials, Gen X and baby boomers that I will not do justice to during the duration of the show. So you guys should just like go and find it. But, um, you know, like he's, he's doing something clearing away the gener- you know, the generational uh, issue, but, um, but like, yeah, where, does this leave you think for the next movie? Like what is the next movie, which is going to be backed by JJ Abrams, which I'm already disappointed for in advance because like there's such a great (laughs) indie film point of view in this movie. It sort of reminded me how like with Taika Waddy making Thor Ragnarok, like Mm. that independent director perspective Mm -hmm. really brings something to this. Um, But like what, you know, I mean, what, what do we think, and I don't mean from a standpoint of like, here's what we project like will actually be, but like what kind of stories do you think could, w- would make sense to come out of this uh, moving forward? Um, well, I think that what is prescient about this film and what will be useful, I don't even know what the projected date is for the next film, um, but uh, as much as I, I'm sort of interested in Snoke in a lot of ways, but <laughs> but I think getting rid of him makes a point. And I think the point it makes is when you get rid of the old asshole in charge, the problem doesn't go away. And I, <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that's an important lesson. <laughs> I think that's an important lesson we may have to learn in 2018 mm-hmm. that you can't you can't just get rid of one ill-tempered maniac. Um, and assume, because I do think this generational, what was cool about The Force Awakens was when we saw the First Order, it was like, oh, but they're not the old white guys they were last time. Now they're yeah. weirdly young. And I, and I think that's been the experience we've had of the last few years is like, it's not that the boomers will die out and suddenly we will all be this progressive age of Aquarius, right? Like, actually evil has found a way to perpetuate itself into the next generation. And actually mm-hmm. they're being very good about bringing back very old ideas. Um, and I think clearing Snoke off the board in act two, and then showing you the Supreme leader is dead. Long live the Supreme leader. Like something else will come up. You can't make it a cult of personality because first of all, there is no personality there. Second of all, these problems will reinstantiate themselves in new people. Um, and I think that that is, if there is a gift being given to J.J. Abrams for the next film, that is the best one. You can now tell a story about what do you do when the problem 
is your age <laughs> when the problem <laughs> has just fallen. When the problem is Adam Driver now, like that's who the Supreme mm-hmm. Leader is. And you know that they could be redeemed, but you have a certain responsibility to the people that they have made victims of. And just real quick, I went first when I saw there were people of color on the bridge of the First Order's ships this time. I was Mm. disturbed by that. Uh, You know, it's sort of like in X-Men comics, whenever they want to have somebody say something anti-mutant in a crowd shot, they always seem to choose a person of color because they're trying to be like, see, it's not only white people that are bad. Um, But uh, (laughs) I had that sort of immediate response. So like, oh, how dare you have this like young this like I guess he was sort of like there was like an Asian American guy, or he's probably mm-hmm. oh I know the one he's super hot I was <laughs> and like there was I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about he's the one who taps the screen yeah um yeah there's definitely these guys I'm there's very shocked yeah it's totally okay there were totally like Asian American there's Asian people and I don't know if I saw black people but there definitely were various non-white people and many women on the bridge of the First Order's ship and I was kind of like don't be like the X Men comics about this people. But the point you raised about, you know, how the problem isn't just limited to the one horrible white dude, like, I think that maybe there is something deliberate about having Mm -hmm. the evil not just be white British dudes in this case. I don't know, Kate, and I'd be particularly interested in your response to that. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And, like, you know, with the sort of... um, uh, (laughs) Everything that we've seen... I guess, as part of this sort of, like, mainstreaming of multiculturalism uh, shows us that, like, representation doesn't mean liberation. And I feel like <laughs> that's, uh, that's yeah. especially true of, like, officers on a, on a dreadnought. Um, but the other thing that I did notice that is sort of interesting is that we see all kinds of alien species in the resistance. We don't see alien species, like, crewing... Um, first order ship. Right. They're all they're all humans yep. and like sort of like felt fit humans regardless of their race, right? Um, and uh, I sort of uh, the, one of the interesting things that that this Star Wars film did that I feel like uh, a lot of them haven't is sort of like really pointed up the like humanoid alien uh, non humanoid alien divide. Um, <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, especially this sort of like scene that's darkly funny with like Chewie eating uh uh, uh pores, Poor. right? Like oh yeah, oh, so <laughs> so like dark, but also hilarious and so fucked up, right? Like <laughs> yeah, but that there's there's <laughs> a, but then he like befriends the Porg like that gets onto the Millennium Falcon. I don't know. But there's, like, some weird thing going on also, I think, with this divide between, like, humanoid versus non-humanoid aliens. Because the humanoid aliens have always had access to a, a lot more. Um, and uh, that's, I mean, that's not necessarily the case under the First Order, right? Like, in a lot mm-hmm. of previous governance structures in the galaxy, we've seen, uh, like, representation, at least, for um, humanoid aliens of a variety of, of types. Um, but then we have all these like non-humanoid aliens in this one with like a great deal of personality, which is pretty interesting. I don't know what you all think, make of that. Yeah. Oh wow. I also think that um, I think that's all true. I think one of the very few things the prequels did interestingly was um, made it very clear what like a diverse, multicultural thing the Republic was under the Senate that Palpatine ends. Right. Like when we see the Senate 
we see like all these different races, including the ET race somehow, <laughs> but we see them all in their little Senate pods. And then by the time we get to um, a new hope, it's, it's just, it's just humans, right? Like, and the films mm-hmm. never discuss anything about that, but there has been, uh, I think the, uh, the novels actually went into this is like, there's been a, a racist purge, right? Like, um, Grand Admiral Thrawn is a figure who has entirely disappeared from the Star Wars canon now, but the character's main arc was that he was a non-human race that had risen through the ranks of the Empire despite its intense speciesism. Um, oh, and it, that's something that the films have never said, um, but have made very visually apparent. Um, and I think the, the weird third element here is the droids, too, right? Like, Droids are also a sentient race. They can talk to you. They have opinions. They're scared of things. C-3PO can tell you he doesn't want to do something. And yet, even our heroes seem perfectly willing to erase their minds, <laughs> to do terrible things to them, um, to sell them, to buy them, right? Like, mm-hmm. and there's, the Korgs are weird. They're like a type of that. What's that? Yeah. Poe refers to BB-8 as, as his all the time in uh, The Force Awakens. Yeah, like what? What? Where's my? He says it in this one too. Where's my droid? Right? Like, what is uh, that? What? Are, what are the terms of that possessive there? Like, what does that my mean? Is it like uh-huh. where's my fin? Or, <laughs> um, and I don't. I hope. I would hope that with as many films are left of this, we eventually because it is. It's thinking about this. That's what the whole passage in Canto Bite is about, right? Like the buying uh-huh. and selling of other sentient life. So. If you're thinking about it, it's time to think about it. Like, let's discuss this on the surface of the film in a way that I'd. That's what I'd like to see in the next film. Um, yeah, yeah. If you end with a shot of a slave hoping for something better, which is how this film ends, then you have to show me uh, a revolution. I mean, one of the things I love about the Ewoks is they're this like lovely little communist <laughs> collective, right? That like overthrows the empire and then like. <laughs> sing their happy little socialist song, right? Like, I need to see something like that. When 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 the revolution comes, I want to see that it's not just, hooray, our planets are free, we still have slaves, but that actually something has changed in the galaxy. Well, Rose really mm-hmm. signifies that when she takes the saddle off the giant space horse and says that now it's worth it after she liberates the giant space horse. Yes. Yeah. Yes, they're not just a prop. Yeah, that's good. Um, have you guys seen the uh, Star Wars hates POC hashtag that's gone around a bit on Twitter? I don't know if it's been on other platforms. No, I no. haven't. Let me see. Well, then we will not respond to it, it on right this podcast. <laughs> um, well, tell us yeah, about Yeah, I it. mean, it just has been a repository for to have for various people, some of whom are people of color, some of whom seem to think that they're speaking on behalf of people of color, um, responding to, you know, stuff in the stories. Um, a lot of folks, I think, talking about whether Finn was sidelined um, as a character, um, questions about whether Poe is like a stereotypical hot-headed Latino. Um, I don't know. I, I don't feel qualified. I, I'm obviously not feeling that or else I wouldn't be having this very enthusiastic conversation, but I just <laughs> wanted to put that um, out there. I... <laughs> I'm just looking, I'm literally looking at some of them right now. I see the hot-headed Latino one that you're talking about. Um, I mean, to what extent, this is the weird thing of when you talk about 
science fiction is like, well, he's, he's, he is and isn't Latino at all times, right? Like he is right. simultaneously Oscar Isaac, who is, who comes with all of the, um, not just visual, but cultural, right? Like he's purposely written his own Latino-ness, Latinx-ness into the character by making, he's turned Yavin into a version of Guatemala. He's thinking about um, his own history as it informs the character. So he is Latino at all times. Um, but to the extent that he, his like Latino-ness slash Yavin-ness informs his hot-headedness, I don't think quite registers, at least for me here. Um, I don't know if you guys feel differently. What I did like, what I thought the most striking moment for me in the film was, well, one of the striking moments was when um, uh, Finn and Rose are running and they've escaped the prison. And Finn says specifically, we've got to get away from the cops. And as soon as he said cops, I was like, whoa, like cops is such a weird, loaded exciting word for him to use in this moment right like mm-hmm. don't just call them the don't just call them the first order don't just make it like this vague nazi-like force but like literally a, what does oppression look like in these films it looks like cops they are called cops i thought that was important work that the film was interested in doing mm-hmm. i definitely like, I think it, like but, Scrolling through some of these tweets, I, I do, like, I, I have a lot of, under, I think, a lot of understanding about, especially the, like, I think, complaints about uh, what Finn got in this film. Um, <laughs> uh, it's, like, it, I do think that, like, uh, there's, let's see... I don't know. I guess like it does seem it does seem like really fraught that um uh like Finn really does kind of get uh you know, he gets tased by Rose, he gets like uh <laughs> he does get like smacked around in ways that I think are really like uh you know, the a lot of other characters don't. Um but I also mm. You know, I think that like this. This is, I think, one of those places that it really feels like there's a lot of ways to like read, like a lot of ways to like read these specific details. Um, and uh, gosh, outside was, of the story, that the, sort of like, yeah. What was this like? I just had a like really good uh, like later in the film sort of like counterexample and, and it's escaped me. Um, <clears throat> well, I mean, this is, if someone, I, reading something more extensive on this might be interesting, but like, I actually thought um, that Finn's battle with Phasma, I really liked in this film and I really liked the way it set it up as um, uh. very much like a black man about to be executed summarily but, and a, and a, an Asian woman about to be summarily executed by this column of faceless soldiers who are um, not just going to execute them, but delighting in the pleasure of hurting them, right? Like that's an yeah. explosive note that asthma hits. Um, it's not, blasters are too good for them. Like there was, there is, that is a police violence, right? Like that is what that scene yeah. is about. Um, and I liked the, 
the satisfaction of when he gets to smack her across the face with that, the same weapon I didn't notice till the second time. It's the same weapon that she was going to use to execute him that he uses to crack her blaster. Um, I think that this is an important thread that I hope the next film continues to pull on. Um, uh, I like the uh-huh. cracked blaster, uh, the cracked helmet. I hope that that comes back, that Phasma is no longer this sort of Teflon figure anymore. <laughs> I'd like to see her start to battle damage in the same way everything in the Star Wars universe tends to battle damage. Um, but I don't That's know. I do think the point, to, one of the yeah. pieces I'm seeing here points out that she, Finn is Force-sensitive, seems to be Force-sensitive in Force Awakens, and that has dropped out here. Um, that yeah, seems true that seems to like me. Good, it also yeah. seems significant, though, to me that the only their their relationship is the only one that ends with a kiss here, right? Like, Nobody yeah. else gets to have a romantic relationship here. So that seems, it seems like it might be important to me, too. I don't know. Yeah. I want to uh, shout out to a campaign right now. Um, it's uh, the pork truck drivers who are organizing in Los Angeles and Long Beach. Um, there's a post uh, of the hashtag Heroes Wear Vests that says, in the new Star Wars film, Rose asks Finn to look at the glittering casino planet Canto Blight. When he does, he realizes that many of the planet's functions on exploited workers, and yet many have the power of the Force, like the Force-sensitive you know, young kid you see at the end. The mm-hmm. same is true here. While we live in the world's wealthiest country, our holiday presents holiday presents get to our stores through the port truck drivers of Los Angeles and Long Beach. And while all of them face terrible exploitation, they too carry the power of the Force. Um, so uh, I definitely want to encourage folks to check out hashtag heroes wear vests that campaign on Twitter and on Facebook with petitions to sign. Um, you know, we definitely know that the lawmakers of Long Beach and LA like care about popular culture. And uh, I, I hope that they can recognize something of the people, the workers who are organizing in the movie that I'm sure that they've also watched now and will like actually protect their rights from Amazon and the other big box companies who are paying them less than minimum wage. Mm. Anyhow, I think Rose's um, I want, remark yeah. about looking closer is super important, right? Like, yes. look closer mm-hmm. at your world. If there's something to take away from this film, it's that. Like, at its most microscopic level, the story of Star Wars is about an older, more powerful force exploiting those beneath it and what can be done to resist that. That's like every film is that story, right? Um, yeah. And that look closer is important to me. And, like, look closer at the island fish people, right? Is that, like... I think I think that the movie did a good job of like out making the fish people on like uh, on Luke's island are not like you're not laughing at them you're like laughing at like the ridiculousness of the situation of what they're forced to endure you know with like these asshole Jedi running around and blasting things. Oh, the um, space nuns! I love them so much. <laughs> the space fish. Yeah, um, <laughs> they're like a great symbol. Like this these huge operatic wars that Star Wars paints, someone has to follow along with the bucket, right? And I love that it's yeah. like, I mean, they're all nuns, so I guess they're all female too in a weird way. Yeah. Like, it's not really clear. They seem fascinating. I want to watch a whole movie about their days, right? Like, you, you blast <laughs> something, someone has to clean it up. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> you slip it through a rock, someone's wheelbarrow gets fucked over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you guys for joining me. I, I, um, does anybody have any sort of final thoughts that you'd like to share on the topic of the movie? Um, 
I mean, you think you the look closer is very important to me, and I think that uh, Yoda's speech to Luke is very important to me. The idea that nostalgia for nostalgia's sake is not a worthwhile venture and will ossify you and will um, make a monster of you. I thought that just you have to be willing to destroy something beautiful. You have to be willing to discard a text you think is sacred. Um, a lot of my work tends to try to recoup the queerness and socialism of um, the Gospels. And uh, Jesus himself says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And I think that if your Jedi text causes you to sin, pluck it out. <laughs> if your uh, <laughs> canto bite causes you to sin, put your fist through it. I think that that was an important message to this film. And I think it's an important thing to take to heart. Um, if something is making a monster of you, get rid of it, I think is, is where I would like to end. Just been thinking a lot about this uh, point that was made earlier about how, um, you know, the the problem in the third film of this trilogy is going to be that the evil guy is now going to be like pretty like young, good looking, and sort of like quote unquote normal, not monstrous the way that um, a lot of the like sort of iconic Star Wars villains are, and I'm really uh, I'm like excited about that because I feel like, you know, Anthony, I think you said that, said this earlier that like Star Wars villains are, are disfigured to the point of it being kind of, and like evil being ugly to the point of it being kind of like ableist. Mm -hmm. Um, And I Mm -hmm. think that like this film for me ushers in this idea that like, you can't, you can't, you can't tell evil by looking at it. Um, and that, like, evil will sometimes come to you with, like, things that are beautiful and with the best of intentions, even. Um, and I think that you see that in Kylo Ren, where he's, like, willing to destroy Snoke, but, like, the thing that he wants to replace Snoke with may be more horrible, right? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, that sort of, it, it's, it's such a, it's such, for me, it's, like, everything that I've ever wanted is, like, somebody who both loves the like Star Wars universe and like thinks critically about these questions of good and evil. Um, and I, I couldn't be happier about it. And I'm cautiously optimistic about the third installment, I think for that reason also. Well, thank you guys for joining me. I'm so excited. This is like my dream lineup of people for this episode. So um, thank you for making it a reality. Uh, can you tell our listeners where, they can find each of you on the internet. Uh, Want to go ahead, uh, Anthony? Oh, uh, sure. Uh, I'm at, uh, my name's Anthony Oliveira. I'm at, um, easiest way to find me is on my Twitter, which is Mia Koopa, M-E-A-K-O-P-A, Mia Koopa, as in uh, the little thing under Mario's foot. And is there anything you want to <laughs> promote that you have coming up or... Um, I have a few, I have a few year end pieces that are going to be dropping, but I'll be posting those to the Twitter account. Um, and I don't know the dates for those yet, so maybe not yet, but, uh, if you follow me there, I'll have the links for you probably later this week, actually. Cool. And Caden, where can folks find you and your amazing work on the internet? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Caden. It's a C-A-Y-D-E-N. Um, I do have like teenagers who bother me every week, basically asking me if I, they can have my handle. Um, but I was there first. 
<laughs> you can find my organization and our work at 18 million rising one eight and then the words million rising um or at 18 million rising.org um what are we working on now geez we're wrapping up the year uh we are doing a little end of year fundraising so check that out um there should be links on our twitter and, and our facebook um yeah thanks for having us this is great woohoo Thank and you so much. You can, I just want to point sure, out that we talked for 90 minutes. Oh, we didn't talk once ahead. about the fact that Moz is involved in a union dispute. Oh, I forgot. Yeah, <laughs> respect this is your union. I'm like, I'm like, you brought back like the you know the, the African actress and her role, and it's just to be. It's actually in my notes, and just to be like a union buster. Like, is right. she Sheldon Adelson? <laughs> like, I don't know, but. <laughs> Is she, is she Henry well, Clay Pick because she's getting a worker's shot? You know? Maybe she's yeah. with the union. I'm not sure. Mm. Maybe. Who knows? <laughs> I think she's management. I don't know. I think she's management of that casino, of the, of her bar. I just... Oh, yeah, because she, she does like, own that bar. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, she's Sorry. also... I mean, she recommends that high-end code breaker, too. So maybe Moz is also a figure who needs to be problematized. <laughs> this is- <laughs> anyway, maybe that's another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it was good to see her, um, and I, I too wonder these things. Um, uh, so, yes, yeah, so graphic policy, you'll be seeing more articles from writers like Andy Wilson and Logan Dalton. We'll both have pieces on our site about the movie very soon. Uh, you'll be able to get this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, um, probably within the next couple hours, if not in the morning. So if you're only catching up with it late, you can get it on your favorite podcast channel at Graphic Policy Radio. We hope you all will become regular listeners of the show. Uh, we'll be talking about Runaways soon, for one thing, and mm-hmm. we'll definitely be doing a year in review in the comic space as well. And uh, you can find me on Twitter all the goddamn time at Ilana, E-L-A-N-A, underscore Brooklyn, like the city. Um, and that's where I am far too much of my time. And uh, also stay tuned for a big project I'll be launching in February around Black Panther. Get excited. Um, yeah well thank you everyone have a great week and as we thank like, you so much such a pleasure. keep it geeky